AWS Developer Podcast. I'm Emily Freeman here with David Spitsky, and our guest today is Jason Yee, Staff Technical Evangelist at Datadog. Welcome, Jason. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. I'm so excited to see you and, and touch base and hear all about Datadog and life and how things are going. Yeah, because it's been quite a while since we've actually hung out in person. I know. I, I mean, we all, I don't know about y'all, for me, I used to do so many conferences pre the troubles, the COVID troubles. And now I'm just not, I don't, I don't want to leave my house. I don't, I like my dogs. I work from my basement. It's nice. There's endless LaCroix. Um, travel is not as attractive as it used to be for me. I don't know. What about you? Yeah. I mean, it's been the same, right? Like you just get comfortable and I did get a dog during all of that. And so now there's even more reason to stay home. But it's that weird thing, right? Because we we would always talk about when you're at that many events and you see all of these people, we're we're sort of coworkers, even though we work yes. for different companies, just because like we are at these events and we're working and we're working with the same people. So they are technically coworkers. Uh-huh. And so yeah. it's it's just that weird thing of like you go from having all these coworkers who you see regularly to not. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, oh, what what happened? How are yeah. they doing? It was an interesting thing in the early months of COVID because I would see you despite not living anywhere near each other. I would see you once a month, once every other month. At like, least, yeah. I saw you a lot. Um, and a, and a, a lot of folks in the sort of DevOps conference circuit. And then the first few months of COVID, I felt really lonely. And it wasn't just not seeing folks. It was me realizing that some of my closest friends weren't local and I couldn't even drive over and sit in their driveway or, you know, there was just nothing. It was, it was Zoomer or no socialization. You know, one of the things too, you made me think about Emily is that my oldest pointed this out to me when we were in lockdowns and I was doing okay too. I thought I was going to be, you know, I was on the, on the road two weeks a month and she's like, dad, everyone you love is in this house. And she's like, that's not the case for me. And I realized, I mean, you all, you all have somebody with you, you know, uh, and it's like, it's a different feeling. I, I do feel for people maybe who don't have that in their life. My advice would be, you know, get out there, find a thing to do, because there's nothing like the energy of being around other human beings, you know, and I didn't realize, you know, I was just going around the house, hugging people, <laughs> taking it for granted. You know, I don't think I would have, I would have done as well. So yeah, I think that's human contacts important in this day and age. It's an interesting thing, right? I mean, part of it for those who are listening who aren't in the US and have different cultures, it can be completely different. But at least in America, there is definitely this thing that it becomes much harder to make friends when you're older and to have those good tight connections. And and so it is that that reminder of, you know, when I was on lockdown, like, who do I have locally? Oh, yeah. maybe I need to invest a little bit more in my local community and start making those friends again. It's totally true. And you're right. There's just not, there's not a, you know, I think sometimes when people, and this is more philosophical and this is my opinion. I think sometimes when people say things like I miss the America of yesterday, despite there being, I mean, like empirically, it was a worse environment for a lot of us, the vast majority of us, like I I wouldn't have been able to have a bank account. That's a problem. But we had structure and mechanisms to our society 
that enabled socialization in a formal sense. And we have lost that formal socialization. Like we don't, we don't go to church, a lot of us. Totally fine, but like that was a way of socializing. We don't have these sort of social clubs, which are they equitable? No, there's so many problems, but they were, they were there. And so, yeah, like a lot of that has just fallen away in our society. And I think all of us are hungry for it, but aren't sure how to make the mechanisms for it. Yeah. I mean, it's a good point, right? You think about things like, you know, as much as you, you say what you will about the, the patriarchy, but like you drive around America and you see things like, you know, the Rotary Club and the Elks Club and the Moose Lodge and all these things. And you're like, those are, they provided a, a real value for community and connection. It makes you wonder like, what, how can we recreate that? Like what, what is the good version and the modern version of all of those? Uh, hold on. I'll, I'm going to ask chat GPT. I'm sure it'll tell us. <laughs> yes. Ask, ask the robot overlords how we should socialize with each other. I'm sure that'll be, that'll be good advice. I did actually join a social club over um, that whole section. And it was fascinating because it was me and the, the 80 year olds. And uh, then I wore jeans one time. I made the critical error wearing jeans to the monthly lunch. And I haven't been back. Wow. The side eyes I got from these 80 year olds melted my soul. I was like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Hold up. Okay, Jason, talk to me about your career. Like, how did you get to where you are? Staff, technical evangelist. How yeah. did, does anyone know why staff became the highest level? Well, it, it either is or isn't, depending on what organization you're in. Because I feel like some organizations flip flop staff and principal, and you're it's right. unclear. Like, Sometimes which is which. Um, a data dog principal is above staff. Um, really? Yeah. So, how do you get here? <laughs> what was your path? That that's a great question, right? Um, actually, it's it's a nice segue back uh, tie back into the community stuff, right? Because that's basically how I got to where I'm at. Um, in some alternate universe, I'm still like a developer or a sysadmin yeah. doing like coding all the time. But for me, it started. Um, you know, basically I was involved in a bunch of software doing some open source stuff and there was a local meetup and got involved in the meetup and pretty soon was leading the meetup because leading meetups is a good way to burn people out. And so there's usually pretty regular turnover there. And uh, my buddy Greg was like, one, one week was like, hey, you can lead the meetup. Like, <laughs> literally was just like, congrats, you're doing it now. Love um, it. So I, I did that and that inevitably leads to the meetup times like that month where you're like, oh, crap, I didn't get a speaker or nobody wants to speak or the speaker fell through. Like, we have to do something. What do we do? And so, you know, you, you come up with all these ideas and eventually you run out of even those excuses and it becomes you have to give a talk. Yes. And so that's what I did. I like got up on stage. It's like, hey, I've been working on this thing. Let me explain it to you. Like, I think it's a pretty good solution uh, and you talk through it and you're like, yeah, I gave a presentation. Can I do this again? Right? Oh, there's a local like conference on this subject. Like, well, I already gave the talk. Let's try it again. Um, and pretty soon you just keep doing that and you find yourself doing a lot more of these educational things, whether that's writing blog posts, which I did simply to document things for myself because I forget a lot of things, or you give a talk or you get on a podcast or whatever. And you start to do these things and they become comfortable. And yes. for some people, you're good at it and you like doing it. And I found that I liked it. And so then discovered that it was a job. 
And if you are good at a job and you keep growing in that and, and trying to achieve excellence, uh, yeah. usually that's a good way to, to get yourself to the higher levels like staff or principal. I, I have a question for you all on this, because I think a lot of people look at the folks that you see on stages a lot. And I, and I think we all contribute to this. You, you do sort of see the same faces over and over again, which I, I think is a disservice to the industry as a whole. I, I think we need, you know, fresh voices with different perspectives and ideas. Uh, but they look at it and just assume that we, we were perfect and, and things always go well for us on stage. So what was your worst talk that you've ever given? Oh man, worst talk. I'll share That's my, great... my, so my, for the audience, my first talk was my worst talk. I ran through it. I was in a panic over the slides. It was a disaster. Um, it was just so fast. It was a 30 minute talk and it ended up being 16 minutes. That's how fast I was talking. But from my like internal experience was 2017, a keynote for Puppet, bless them. They made the room to hold the entire conference, but it was a multi-track conference. So they, the keynote room held like 1,500 seats or something. Really big room. <laughs> Guess how many people showed up to my talk? <laughs> 12. <laughs> wow. So it that, was, wow. It was being live streamed and their cameras were in the back. So I had to sort of pretend that it was the energy of this massive Damn, room. got to bring it. When it was 12 people, that was really hard. That was really, really hard. Yeah. I've been at a conference that was basically the same. Uh, I was in the last, it wasn't the keynote, thankfully, but it was yeah. still like, you know, it was towards the end of the conference and massive, massive room. And yeah, like six people showed up. Yes. But that said, like, I mean, I, I don't feel like those are the worst. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. like with that amount of people, you can speak a little bit more directly to them, at least, well, maybe not if it's a keynote live streamed, but yeah. for those six people in the room, I didn't have to be up on stage and just like speaking yeah. out into the void. Like I could actually sit down on the edge of the stage and like, I kind of walked through yeah. my slides with them, but it was more of a, a dialogue. And that was the that. nice thing about it is like, cool. I don't have to speak to everybody. I don't care about the recording. I'm here for you six people. You people yes. are invested enough that you showed up. I, love that. I agree with you. And bad talk to me was an inability to connect in a real way with the audience. And it didn't matter if it's 500 or five, which is why I, dry runs were so painful for me because I'm not connecting yeah. with anybody. They're just people that like are there to make sure you don't say something, <laughs> you know, for me, it, it never mattered how many people I'll give you. A, here's a funny thing. So this is like 2013. Amazon flies me to Barcelona to Mobile World Congress. And we're talking about HTML5. We just launched HTML5. This is like, I don't even know if we had our Kindle Fire tablets out. So, and I had done HTML5. There's a course out there. You could probably find it on LinkedIn. I wrote this balloon game in HTML5 game loop. I was all proud of myself. It, it's, it, people had no clue. They're like, what are you talking about HTML5? You know, everyone uses Unity. Yeah. Uh, for mobile games, right? So they they have this, the marketing person, shout out to Rena, she's still at Amazon, sets up this room. I go into this room. I'm at the company less than six months and I've done big talks before. So I'm like, this is going to be big and they're, we're going to film it and everything. I go in, it's one person, my boss, their boss, and the VP of devices. Oof. And I was <laughs> like, okay. So like I did my thing. And um, I saw him 
I'm not going to say any names. He's still at the company. Uh, <laughs> and he's, and he's, a, he's a great guy. Yeah. I'll, I'll just say it's, it's Aaron. Like he's the guy that actually like helped create like one click and stuff. So Amazing. we're at this after party in Barcelona or whatever. And the guy comes up to me and he meant it as a compliment. And he was like, Dave, man, like you really brought it. Like there was no one in that room and you gave it your all. <laughs> That's awesome. And I was like, <laughs> like thanks. Uh, thanks. Yeah. But um, I realized, and we were talking about this a little bit before the show, and I'll just, uh, we didn't get to finish, so I'll, I'll share it, is that for me, the stage is, is such a huge thing in connecting with people because I I went through this new company. They're kind of like 23 and Me. It's called the DNA Company. I'm not endorsing them or anything, but they map the way your brain works. And supplements. <laughs> <I'm> just- yeah, <laughs> yeah. We don't get we don't get paid anything for, uh, outside of our Amazon salaries, but they give us like 10,000 other things to do anyway. So <laughs> Emily cries at her death. Yes. So yes. So, but this is really cool. And this, I, I, I wish I knew this earlier. And it, it explains so much why we're all special, different snowflakes is a lot of like how our brains work. So Jason, you may know, let's just in interacting with me, Emily certainly knows this is that I get very excited about something and then I'm, you know, I get passionate about it, but that may be all over the place and maybe different things. So evidently my brain, I produce dopamine very, very fast, but I have really hard problem with oxytocin and oxytocin is what makes you feel connected and universal love and this kind of piece. And I'm, I suck at it. So I'm always feeling disconnected from people, but I'm feeling short-term energy from things that keep me interested, which is why I have all these interests. And I realized being on stage gave me the oxytocin because I'm feeling connected and all these seeing all these people. So it was an interesting thing that explained a lot why I did talk when I did <laughs> speaking for so long and why it gave me that rush that I didn't yeah. find other people did because my brain actually needed it. And I imagine after I said, I was like, I wonder if a lot of musicians or performers have the same thing where they're driven because they have low oxytocin. And one of the other things in the research, like if you're a, an accountant or something like that, your dopamine's wired very different. So your reward system is, is very different than what, uh, to me, that would be a living hell just sitting through spreadsheets all day, oh my right? Gosh, could you imagine like doing, or doing taxes? Like tax right. season is the worst season ever. And, and could you imagine that being your job? Yeah. So, and that's a brain is set up that way. So anyway, yeah. it's just super interesting. That is interesting. Okay. Yeah. So Jason, tell us about Datadog. What does Datadog do? Yeah. So Datadog is a observability platform. Um, we make it easy to monitor what's going on in your systems, both from a reliability and performance perspective, and also from a security perspective. So that's something relatively new that we've gotten into over the past couple of years. But yeah, the idea is how can you get as much data about your systems as possible? We've talked a little bit about observability on the show before with Danil. Can you kind of define what you think most people's definition of observability is? Observability is one of those really, I don't want to say polarizing, but I, I think a lot of people have very strongly held opinions about it. Mine is that we are really bad at naming things in tech, particularly when we steal those names from other areas of study. So one of the, one of the interesting things, and I've fallen victim to this myself, is we're smart. We know how to use search engines. Do you search for observability? You get the Wikipedia page. It says something about like measuring the internal state of systems by yes. the internal output. Um, that's the definition that I pulled from Wikipedia as well. I used to use it, and I'm like. 
this is not actually what we're talking about. Simply because uh, it assumes that you have a box, right? That you're dealing with something that you don't know what's going on inside, yeah. which is not at all what it's like for, for tech. You know, people will argue like, oh, you don't know exactly, but it's like, yeah, you do. You, you wrote the code. Like you should have a, a sense of what's going on. And then the people that would argue with you would be like, well, yeah, but you don't know what's happening like right at that second. And that's, not true either because that's what observability is now, right? We have profiling tools and we have tracing tools and you can step through code. I mean, we do it all the time when we're using a debugger to write code. You can step through it in nearly real time and see exactly what's going on. So we're not measuring external outputs. Like observability these days means actually just taking the time and looking at what's going on in your systems. Sorry, it's a really good point. Like, I think so much of, because I'm guilty of this. Like, I've given a talk on observability. I've used that exact quote. And I, I think so much of what we have kind of utilized to make sense of our specific industry comes from other industries. I mean, everything related to incident response comes from, uh, you know, observe all these elements come from other industries and, and areas of expertise. It's kind of time, I think, Jason, in that we use new words or define new things, like make it ours, specific to our specific needs and things like that. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of it, too, is as you're trying to explain things, you know, especially in, in developer relations, you use a lot of analogies, right? How can I communicate this complex thing yeah. in a way that somebody else can understand it? And I feel like that's sort of what we're doing when we borrow a lot of these ideas is... We don't have the vocabulary and the, the background of communications to actually communicate about these things that we're dealing with. So we see these other things, and rather than it just being like, here's an analogy, we're like, why don't we just borrow that? And we reach over and we grab it, and we're like, cool, we're going to call this observability now because that seems like a good word. And you know, at one point that probably did match the idea of a box, right? Back in the days where all you had was metrics and you were looking at like, oh, what's my server CPU or the memory consumption? Like you could sort of figure out what was going on, but you didn't know what was going on in your code. But as the world has evolved, like now you can. And we really haven't evolved this idea of observability or at least the definition to match the, the current state of, of the software that's out there. Let's come up with some new terms right now. I'll do, um, uh, I, I think we'll, we should call it Emily. Yeah, I want and to frame that would, it somewhere. Emily will be extreme monitoring involving long years. <laughs> and that can, we can apply that to any service. Okay? I like it. Extreme Trainer. monitoring. So for all of our listeners out there, if you're working on code, you should Emilize your, your code because that's really what you need. It's going to take long years. But oh it's, like, you got it. You got to be extreme about it. All I right. I, I did want to ask though, um, observability. Do you feel that it changes? You know, having this sort of ability to step through code, totally true on the application level. How does observability then change when you're looking at the whole, or that like more holistically for your system? Yeah, that's a fantastic question, right? And so that's where things like distributed tracing come in, right? So we went from APM just being like let's track our code as it makes function calls or you know whatever and see what's in variables, blah, 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 to we work in a distributed world. How do you track what's happening in one system as it makes calls out to other systems? 
and distributed tracing, things like open tracing, open telemetry, like really have been leading the way in that. And so it does give you that sense of not only what's happening on the larger scale with our systems, but also like how are how are things connected? And to me, that's that's been the biggest value is less so about what does a trace look like for a web request that's hitting you know a dozen different systems. For me, as somebody that used to work with all of that and like write the code, and sometimes have to respond to incidents, was the notion of like this thing's broken. I know it's in these other systems, but I don't know what's there. And now with this ability of actually being able to see inside your code and see it inside your code as it goes across different systems is that ability to be like, I know it's going to that system and I can follow that trace and I know where in your code it is. And so now we can work together, right? About the different things that you're observing as you're kind of, you know, you're looking at it from a holistic piece. So you're thinking about costs and things like that, right? The ability to actually drop in like you were talking about before with a debugger, how, you know, somebody who's not too in-depth with the tooling around that space, like frameworks, what is, when you're talking about this, what are those things that you're observing and, and what's the best way to kind of look at that? Yeah. You know, so as people, you know, if you're a new developer and you're coming in, you're like, what should I take a look at? Right. Yeah. <laughs> that That's always the challenge. So there's been a number of frameworks that have been out there. I think they all kind of revolve around the same concepts. Uh, I think the most popular current one is called the four golden signals. My acronym for it is LETS, uh, latency, errors, traffic, and saturation. So latency, how long does it take for something to do what it's supposed to do? Right. That's pretty basic. It's performance, but that's a good sign of as you're working on code, can you make it faster? Can you make this thing more performant? Errors is also pretty obvious, right? Like how many errors are you outputting? Um, both as like a, a rate, right? How many, cause let's be honest in, in modern computing, receiving a single error is not a bad thing in many cases. Receiving lots of errors is, um, but it, then it's also, you know, what sort of errors are those? Sometimes you can just ignore things. Traffic is basically your request rate, right? So both if it goes up, if it goes up, like, is this a problem? Uh, maybe, could be that something got super popular, lots of people are using it, that's fantastic. It could be something's gone horribly wrong and there's a bunch of retries on it and it's just gonna keep getting worse. Um, or if it goes down, right? If nobody's hitting your website, something's probably wrong. And then saturation or resource utilization, like, do I have enough things, right? EC2 instances or or whatever to support the thing that I'm supposed to be running. That's a good like foundational starting point. It's it's a little bit in the detail sometimes for for a lot of engineers. And so to take one step back from that framework, it's really just what are you what do your users want? Right? What is that thing that you're trying to do for them? And then how would you measure that? Yeah. Does Datadog help? Folks set up like because I, I you said it could be overwhelming. That makes a ton of sense to me. There's just so much information. How do you actually process it as a human and understand not only what it's telling you, but then the assumptions or, or consequences of what's actually happening? Do, does the system help folks set it up, or how does that work? Yeah, yeah, we we help folks set it up. Um, so one of the things that we recently released is called Universal Service Monitoring, which is absolutely amazing because a big problem that people have is 
I need monitoring, I don't know where to get started, or I need monitoring and I know what I'm doing, but that other service team doesn't and I can't see their stuff. Yeah. And so what universal service monitoring has is basically auto-instrumentation. Um, it uses, awesome. there's, there's a few ways to do it, but there's a few technologies it uses, one being eBPF, and basically what it'll do is tap into the Linux kernel um, that's running and start to gather up information about services. And so those four signals, um, latency, error, traffic, and saturation, those are ones that you get out of the box. So with auto-instrumentation, you just set it free, it does the thing, discovers your services and pulls in those metrics for you. So you've got something without doing really any work, which is really, really nice. On top of that, the thing that I love is we've got an amazing data science team and they've built a ton of stuff around basically how do you surface this? Because mm. we've gotten to the point, you know, if we think of observability and we have all this data and we can see inside things, the amount of data that we've got and that we have to process through is just ridiculous. Like it's yeah. impossible to look at. So our data science team has worked on a number of tools. Um, foremost is what we call Watchdog because everything has a dog pun. <laughs> um, Which I like. Wa Watchdog is there to watch out for you, right? And so mm -hmm. uh, it's basically using machine learning and statistical analysis to to look at your data and start to surface some of those weird anomalous incidents or, or things like things that you should really be you know be aware of that you might have otherwise overlooked. Yeah. Please tell me that your code names internally before launching services are dog breeds. Like there's, you know, Project Malinois. Or... There are a lot of internal dog things. There are also a lot of other weird references. <laughs> really? Yeah. The fun one for me that I really, really enjoy that wasn't yeah. a thing uh, when I was at Datadog earlier, which I can talk about later if we want, mm -hmm. but uh, I came back to Datadog and I'm a huge Pokemon Go player. Uh, wow. I play way too much, and all of our instances and clusters have been named after Pokemon. Really? Bulbasaur. And so, yeah. So there is like Bulbasaur is one of them, and there's beautiful. There's a bunch of cool stuff. Yeah. That's funny. That's cool. What is it like to go back to a company? I've never done it. I just I burn those bridges and I move on, Jason. I <laughs> may the bridges may the bridges I burn light the way. <laughs> But like, what? Seriously, like, how is that to come back to a company? Because it's it's kept moving without you. It yeah. feels in some ways new, I'm sure, but other ways, you know, familiar. That's the interesting thing, right? Is so I used to have this motto of like never go back, uh, both for like companies, but also places that I've lived because I've lived in a whole bunch of places. Yeah. Um, and and it was this idea that I had, like that you should always just keep moving forward, and that meant new things and new opportunities and new experiences and adventures. And so the idea of going back to a company always seemed like this weird thing to me. So basically, I joined Datadog at 2016 when it was still very early on, and all we did was yeah. metrics and dashboards before we had a whole bunch of other stuff. And by the time I left in 2019, at the end, we were like 2,000-ish people. Um, so we had basically at that point, that's like 20x from when I grew when I joined. Yeah. And then also, you know, we had just this whole bevy of, of products, including, you know, APM logs, et cetera. And so then I was like, this is too big for me. Like, I, I need some freedom. I want, I want to, like, run and get involved in a bunch of different things. So I went to a, a small startup, um, which was a fantastic learning experience. Uh, mm -hmm. my, to sum up that experience, I would say, be careful what you wish for. 
because I did a lot of things there. Um, yeah. Aside from building out their DevRel program, I was helping with uh, sales engineering and I was a customer success manager for some accounts, bunch of stuff. I have found that at startups, if you are head of DevRel, you become some kind of strange consigliore, like where you're, you're influencing major decisions, but from a side angle, not in the same way that product does. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a weird thing. So, uh, you know, that be careful what you wish for meant that I was doing a whole lot of things within the organization and they were all extremely valuable, right? Everything from helping with marketing to running events and, you know, all of that. And so for me, it was, it was fantastic on one hand, because I learned so much, like I've never been in sales and having to be a customer success manager for a half dozen accounts and like figure out this thing of like, oh, we need to, you need to renew because that's how we make money. Right. And previously I'd gone in as like, I'm just going to be an evangelist and I'm going to help you get better and educate you on tech. And now it turned into like, oh, I need to sell you a thing. Right. That's, that's a fantastic, interesting learning opportunity. So absolutely glad that I did it. Uh, but at the same time, doing so many different things becomes very challenging and takes its toll. So ended up uh, coming back to Datadog simply from chatting with folks that I still knew who were there. And it's like, what's it like now? And it is that thing of like, you know, at this point, we're over double the size of when I left. And the team that I joined is over double the size of when I left. Wow. And so it's whole new challenges, right? The challenges that we had when we were small of basically your DevRel, go out to all the conferences, talk about the thing, mm -hmm. make our, our brand like a common household name, or at least in yeah. tech, right? Uh, to something that's more like we're big, we need processes, like we've grown yes. organically. How do we... How do we sustain this growth? How do we operate efficiently at scale? Um, yeah. Which is a fantastic challenge to, to have to work with. It's so true. Yeah, that, all the dynamics change. And I am personally fascinated by how communication pathways shift as you, as you scale out. Yeah. I love this about you. And I feel like you're funneling all of these different possibilities and figuring out what you actually like and that at that point in time. And I did a very similar thing in my career. I did consulting for years in the early web to see what a big company was like. Uh, and then I worked at a big company and I was like, nope, that's not it. And I think one of the reasons why I like being an advocate, you know, evangelist, however you phrase it, is that it's more human than any role I've ever been in because there's no one way to do it. The way yeah. that I do it could be completely different than someone else. And it, it shifts over time and it, it kind of, it's the in-between spots. So every organization is trying to accomplish something and has teams that have processes and everything that falls in between all of those processes. It's like, that's the role that is the human being that can relate and connect with those. You know, at one point I was literally doing the Alexa skill certification through an Excel spreadsheet because we didn't have the, the processes in. And it was so cool. You know, it's like, how can you, you know, but an advocate was perfect for that job because you knew the tech and you knew the Tech, you, you knew the teams, you knew the vision, you know, things like that. So I love that about you. And you may, you may find there may come a day where you're like, you know what? I miss when there's nothing there. I want to create a new idea out of nothing with five people 
and do every single job because I'm passionate about it, you know? And that's what's great about life. I think the older we get, you know, there's going to be more and more centennials. When, when, when people start living to, you know, over a hundred years old, it's not, oh, you go to, you go to school, you go to college, you get, you know, you find someone, you build a family, you retire. There's none of that. It's cycles. So you could be, you know, you could be in your sixties and say, you know what, I'm going to become a musician. Or, you know, and I love, because I think that's the way life should be. It shouldn't just be this up and then everything's a decline. You know, someone who's getting older to me, I'm like, I pay this thing. I just got an iPad Pro. I'm, I'm sketching again. I haven't drawn since I was a kid. And I'm like, hey, maybe I'll be an amateur illustrator after this tech thing. And I, you know, just keep doing that. I think that's an important thing in life. So that is it a great thing in life. It's but I, like I'm 36 now. And so my next major birthday is 40. And, and thinking about my parents at 40, I thought they were so old. Yeah. And it was this yeah. whole like over the hill thing. I don't feel remember those over the hill balloons. I just think we've aged well in comparison to our parents' generation. And maybe it's just because we have better medicine. We have better. Yeah. We just, we just, we have better access to knowledge of what works and what doesn't. I mean, back then they weren't telling you to exercise. They weren't telling you, you know, all these different things that you should be doing. And my generation is like, you know, the men in my family, I don't think they ever went to a doctor. Unless there was like, you know, something was going to fall off, you know, or I go routinely, you know, I'm trying to take care of myself for my kids. And so, yeah, I I agree with you. It's it's definitely, we've raised the bar on what it means to be in thirties and forties. And uh, I mean, I think that some of it as well is what you said, better access to information, right? Because there's a notion of like, I'll do it all the time. You you hop on YouTube because you're like, oh, I wanted to watch a thing. And then it recommends the thing, the other thing to you. And you're like, yep. I would have never thought to look at that. Like I rug cleaning. If you, if y'all out there want something that's super satisfying and just relaxing, go on YouTube and look for rug cleaning (sighs) videos. I watch those to fall asleep. They're amazing. amazing. You're just like, they, they bring in these like rugs that are just disgusting. They're like black and they're covered with mold and like feces and, (laughs) <laughs> things that you're just like this thing should be burned like don't don't save it just burn it uh-huh. and they bring it out and then they do the process right they're hosing it off and they're like squeegeeing it and then they take the scrubber and like at the end you get this fantastic thing you're like there was a rug under there and it's a beautiful rug and why would you ever think about burning that like of course yes. you'd save it right but that's it's so relaxing to watch these things and i'm like I would have never thought of like rug cleaning videos had it not been some random algorithm that was like, you should watch this. And I think it's those kinds of things where we have this information that allows you to reinvent yourself and discover new interests that you would have never been exposed to had you been born like 50 years ago. And it's, you know, we have access to more information than leaders of countries had a hundred years ago. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with you. So we went off on a tangent there. I love, I love how that Emily's more Dave today than me. She's the one that's all, she's asking all these questions. It's great. I I was also going to say we have more access to Botox. Um, Moving on. So. (laughs) Hey, I was going to move on. I was going to, you're totally me today. I love this. I know. I'm just like the Kool-Aid man. Go for it. I got, I got. And stop, uh, and stop growling too. The audience heard it. I know these dogs just will not behave. Sure, blame it on the dog, Emily. I, I will. I will always blame it on the dog. Should we talk about Graviton? Sure. Yeah. 
I guess I should kick this off then. That, I that just, was I'm Emily like, asking I'm you, like, what, sure. is, what is Graviton? <laughs> Tell us what is Graviton. <laughs> I'm a chaos monkey. Yeah, what is Graviton? Yeah, I mean, it's the, the short answer is that Graviton are EC2 instances in AWS. Uh, so they're the compute instances that use uh, the Graviton processor, which is an ARM64 based processor. Um, so this is actually speaking of like random things that you didn't know you were interested in that you get interested in, right? Is processors. I mean, a lot of tech nerds are, are definitely into processors and building their home rigs and stuff. And one of the interesting things is, you know, for a long time we've been on x86 being like Intel and AMD processors. And, you know, you talked about like, you know, what kind of like Pentium you were using, which is, I, is Pentium even a thing anymore? I don't know. Um, it is not. It is right. not. Is that what goes in X look, uh, at, look over there, Jason. Those are Motorola sixty eight hundred processors. Nice, right? Yeah, which was original Mac, uh, Amiga, all of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those those six eight XX like serious stuff, right? Like, yeah, that was back when the in the early days when we talked about like risk versus CISC. If you remember like hackers. Reduced instruction set and simplified. Yeah. Yeah. So reduced instruction set versus simplified instruction set. And the idea is if if you're taking more complex things like if else statements and things like that, how do you convert that into into a simple binary set of instructions that computers just basically do math, right? Like basic math. How do you take an if statement and turn it into like one plus one is two kind of things? and so there was this whole like argument for a long time of like how you should design processors, and eventually x86 sort of became the standard that we were on. But one of those things with, with the standard of x86 is it became all about just pure like things like clock speed, right? Like how fast, how many gigahertz can we have, right? Or how many megahertz initially, and now how many gigahertz can we have? And then it became things like, well, can you have multiple CPUs? And all of that started to lead to huge amounts of power being required for these systems, right? If anybody out there has ever like built their own desktop, like you know, like buying a really beefy power supply unit is part of that, right? You need to power everything. And when you think about on the scale of AWS and all of their data centers, like that be- that power draw becomes insane, like. There's a reason that like AWS data centers are out in like these towns in the middle of nowhere, but they're often near rivers or other things because there's like hydroelectric. And so you can be closer to that power generator on that river and get all the power you need. But from a like ecological and like just cost perspective, it's, it's kind of insane. Um, Meanwhile, you've got this phone in your pocket that's more powerful than the computers behind Dave combined. And it's running on an ARM processor because those were designed to be super power efficient. And thankfully, like folks at AWS had some of that foresight to be like, if we reduce our costs, like our power costs on data centers, and we can keep that performance, we can save a ton of money. And thus, Graviton was born. That's awesome. Yeah, the awesome thing for us is that they pass on that savings as well, right? So um, if you are looking at spinning up some EC2 instances, and you can do Graviton, they're way cheaper than the Intel equivalents. Uh, Oftentimes, they will perform better. And so a big thing for us at Datadog is we've had this big initiative over last year and continuing on this year to reduce costs, because we spend 
an outrageous amount of money with AWS. Can't Thank give you, people the numbers, the but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. My partner, who's an engineering manager, and I was, she was mentioning her spend, and like one month spend is higher than your monthly. Yeah, our, our one month is higher than her annual, and it was it was nuts. Can you talk like what's that? Can you talk at least to the scale of yeah, like yeah. how many so, instances you're running and things like that? We're in the tens of thousands of EC2 instances. Um, we basically have several thousand services that we're running. Uh, wow. We run, most of that is a giant Kubernetes cluster. So we, we manage our own Kubernetes cluster. We're not using like EKS uh, simply because we need control over the control plane uh, and a bunch of other things. So yeah, we're basically, it's like tens of thousands of nodes on Kubernetes. It's like hundreds of thousands of pods that represent several thousand services. The scale for like what we do in terms of observability is as an observability provider, right? People send us their metrics and their logs, et cetera. And so we basically ingest tens of trillions of events, meaning metrics or logs or any data point, uh, tens of trillions of those every day. Are you seeing, like when you shift to these ARM processors, I remember getting 386s 386SX and the DX had the math co. And then depending on what you were doing, you know, if you were running MathCat or something like that, uh, that CPU was faster. Do, are you finding there's a time versus cost trade-off? Like if you're doing analytics, are they taking longer, as, but it's costing less? Is there like that pyramid of, you know, time, yeah. money, resources that you're seeing? Yeah, there definitely is. So for example, you know, one of our services that we, that's a huge service for us is metrics intake, right? So basically it's the, the API endpoint where all of the metrics get sent to, and that's a huge part of our system. And so that was one where like, we took a look and it was like, we think we can switch this over to those Graviton instances. And it was interesting because we've done a lot of various optimizations. There was a lot of work involved in just like setting up our deploy pipelines to be able to do that. But but the main interesting thing for that was that Graviton right now, at least Graviton 2 instances, are actually slower. They're, for, the, for the entire service, it runs about 3 to 5% slower on an instance. But there's a 20% cost savings. So you know oh, the wow. net outcome is that we're saving like half a million dollars a year on this. You know, and if it's like 3 to 5% slower, because it's horizontally scalable, you just add a few more instances, you know, to fill in that three to five percent. But across the board, yeah. it's twenty percent cheaper. That's incredible. That's awesome. Yeah, so yeah, we're where- super excited because Graviton three instances are, are coming online, right? And and those like increase that performance gap even more. They're supposed to be what like twenty percent faster than Graviton two, which might make up that three to five percent difference and keep us the savings. Uh, as well as some of the new Graviton 3 instances have higher network bandwidth. And for a lot of our systems, that's actually the constraining point is not so much the CPU. It's just when you're handling tens of trillions of events, that's just a lot of network traffic. Yeah. That's fascinating. Where can people learn more about Datadog, this work with Graviton? Yeah. So I gave a talk at Amazon reInvent, AWS reInvent last year. Um, so the video for that is online on the I think it's the AWS Events YouTube channel. Awesome. So you can just like search my name and reinvent and you'll probably find that talk. If you want to learn more about Datadog, we're datadoghq.com um, or just search for Datadog, you'll find us. 
Um, yeah. Fantastic. And what's a sort of next for you? What, what has got you excited? Yeah, next for me, there's a few things that I'm working on that are super exciting. The reason that I really got into ARM and this whole story was part of my job now is less about me going out there and speaking and more yeah. about enabling others to do it. Those others being the engineers at Datadog, because to be honest, like I'm kind of an idiot. Like I speak well, I understand tech, but if you were to ask me to do any of this Graviton work and mm -hmm. digging into it, like I, I probably couldn't do it, at least. Yeah. Not in a reasonable amount of time. Yeah, the engineers that we seen. I feel so seen. Yeah, I know. But the engineers that we work with, like same with it at Amazon, right? Whenever I talk with engineers who are actually working on Amazon stuff, it's just like, yeah. wow, you're so brilliant. Oh yeah, they are. And we, so it's a thing of like, why should why should I be out there as like, you know, I speak well, but again, I'm an idiot. Like, why should I be out there? How about you be out there? Like, you amazing, intelligent person that did amazing, cool things. You should go out there and I could just teach you how to do the the talking part. That's incredible. Yeah, Amazon um, engineers are, I have never worked with such intelligent human beings. But the other day a friend was like, well, you don't code anymore. And I was like, listen, I can code. It's just going to take a lot of time and not be performant and the code will be ugly. Okay? <laughs> Stop running your mouth. But this was fascinating, Jason. Thank you so much for joining. I'm thrilled you came on, uh, and I know our listeners will be excited to, to learn from you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. You just did a bye. That, bye. That's like Brooke's <laughs> sign off. Wait until Brooke hears. They're going to be so excited. The bye. Oh, wait. Bye. Now I did bye. We're yes. going to have to make a remix. Okay. Dave. You summoned something. <laughs> With my sigil, my witch work. Um, TikTok is working. Okay. <laughs>